with me this morning to the New Testament epistle of Hebrews, chapter 10. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 19 through 25. The word of our Lord from the epistle to the Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let's breathe a quick word of prayer together. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each one of us, let each one of us find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We are surrounded in our daily lives by things we often take awfully for granted. Things that we just assume are there and sometimes things that we uh, forget are there. Normally they're kind of small, they seem a bit insignificant, but they're absolutely everywhere. They are in our kitchens, they are in our bathrooms, they are in the stores uh, where we frequent, Uh, they are all around, they're in our cars, they're in our glove boxes, they're sometimes stamped on our glove boxes. Those things that I'm speaking of, they're small and often forgotten and often taken for granted, if you haven't uh, realized it yet, are warning labels. Um, some of the more popular of these warning labels are the ones uh, on, on items that you would purchase at Ikea. Their, their uh, warning labels are notoriously known for being silly and kind of absurd. They've got these stick figure drawings and sometimes they're kind of violent looking. You know, they show that this thing could cut your hand off and so it has a picture of a hand removed from a body in blood. And all sorts of weird, uh, weird labels that, uh, that Ikea puts on their products. Uh, some of those that are absurd are related to bathrooms, particularly bathtubs, and electrical products. 
And I've always wondered who really, while bathing, is trying to blow dry their hair. But clearly, someone has done it, or the warning wouldn't be there. You know, anytime you see a notice or a warning, typically you can assume that someone has done that which is not wanted to be done, and therefore it has to be said. Apparently, these warning labels really do need to be said. Sometimes in the scriptures we find warning labels. We find things that are said that we wonder, did it really need to be said? And sometimes those things make us uncomfortable. You know, there's a need that we have in life for discomfort. When comfort is dangerous, we need to be uncomfortable. Pain, C.S. Lewis said, is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. You want to feel a sense of pain if you're too close to the fire. You know, when your child touches the hot oven, it, it's actually good for them to feel that sensation of burning. It, it helps them realize there's danger here. And so in our lives, there's, there's a level of discomfort that we ought to actually invite, again, if comfort is dangerous. And so I'll offer you a warning. As your pastor... I am your shepherd, your spiritual guide, and therefore I am responsible to God for the trajectory in which I lead you or fail to lead you. And so, we have come to Lent. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, and one of the things that traditionally has been done during this period of six weeks is, um, or six Sundays together, is the church typically returns back to those things that are elemental, those things that are fundamental. Some congregations will walk through the Apostles' Creed together for these six weeks or the five weeks leading up to Palm Sunday. Um, sometimes you've got pastors who are preaching on some of the basics of Christian faith. Obviously, uh, you can see how the Apostles' Creed would be beneficial in doing that. But what I would like to do during these weeks together during Lent, is look at some passages of Scripture that are, quite frankly, uncomfortable to us. Uh, some of these passages will be obscure passages. Some of these passages will be not so obscure. But there will be passages that we know they're there and we just kind of forget them or we take them for granted. Uh, sometimes these passages will really push us and challenge us. And to be quite honest, some of these passages will be kind of uncomfortable for me as your pastor uh, to present to you. Um, but we're going to look at them nonetheless. There will be a number of passages that, that would be fitting for this that we will not get to. Uh, you could probably think of some. But what I want to do is, particularly in the New Testament, look at some passages that, that could be seen kind of as warning labels, that kind of make us scratch our head and wonder, does that really need to be said? Um, one of these, which is kind of glaringly obvious to me that we actually won't get to, uh, is Paul's scorching of the Corinthians concerning the Lord's Supper. He actually tells them, he says, look, when you guys come to receive Holy Communion, some of you guys, first of all, you're letting the wealthiest among you come first and you're keeping the poor in their seats and they have to wait. And those wealthy ones that are particularly hungry, they're just eating whatever they want. And what's happening is... When it comes time for the poor among you or those that are, are not of a high social status, when it's time for them to come, there's nothing left for them to eat. 
And so that's the context in which Paul says, search your hearts before you come to this table. If you're hungry, eat at home, eat breakfast. Kind of weird, right? Did that really need to be said? Well, apparently so. The Corinthians had all sorts of things messed up going on in their lives. And that was one of them. But that's, that just gives you kind of an example of, uh, of some of the things that we'll be looking at during these weeks together. Some of you saw this uh, announcement, this uh, warning or advisory on, uh, on Facebook and Twitter and social media uh, yesterday. Um, this is kind of an advertisement that we're going to be using. Pastoral advisory, uncomfortable content. Uh, this will be our Lenten sermon series, of course, on uh, Sunday mornings. And, and these sermons will be available on the podcast. I've, had, uh, I've already had uh, some ask me if, uh, if they'll be on the podcast. They will be. Um, one warning label. Warning, contents of sermon may provoke thought. Just beware. You, you, you may be asked to think a good bit on Sunday mornings here. There also, uh, contents of sermon may be awkward to hear. Just, uh, just so you know, contents of sermon may be difficult to hear. Not just awkward, but they might, uh, might push you a little bit. And of course, contents of sermon may step on toes. Um, with that, I, I do want to give you my pastoral advisory. Um, we'll be looking at some content that's somewhat uncomfortable, and some of it won't be quite so uncomfortable. Uh, typically, if it doesn't step on my toes, or doesn't step, you know, on your toes, then you, then you won't think of it as being too uncomfortable. But some of it will be. Paul is dealing with a theology when he writes his letters where he talks about the church as the body of Christ. Now, some believe that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews, uh, but there's no claim that Paul did. We, quite frankly, don't know who wrote this letter. Uh, there are a lot of elements in it that seem to lead us to believe that Paul did not. But one thing that seems for certain is that the writer of this letter at least understood Paul's theology of the church. Paul's theology of the church is that the church is the body of Christ. It is his presence in the world. And as a body, it is one. There is but one church. One church universal. One church spanning all of time. And that church, that one body, is composed of a variety of parts. This is what lies behind Paul's theology of, of the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to the church, to the variety of parts, variety of members of the body who are equipped in a variety of ways to help the body so as to function. But what this writer tells the Hebrews is that this body is needed to come together to worship. Let's walk through the passage just very briefly. He says, we have, let us come with boldness to enter the holy place, the holiest of holies, by the blood of Jesus. He's getting into some temple talk. We're coming into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, he calls this a new and living way. And he says that Christ has consecrated this holy place for us through the veil. And he says that veil is his flesh. Paul's using, or the writer here, um, 
presumably not Paul, is using some very vivid language, some very tangible language when he talks about a holiest place that we're entering into. And he's bringing our minds to the idea of a temple or the temple. And the the veil that has been torn is Christ's flesh. He's made a way for us to enter into this holiest place. He says, therefore, because he has consecrated this, and because there is a high priest over the house of God, that is Christ, we are to draw near. We are to draw near with a true heart and with full assurance and faith. He says that our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. He says that our bodies have been washed with pure water. He's bringing to our minds the image also of baptism. And so you've got this temple image, you've got this image of the washing of waters, the tearing of flesh. He says also, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises is faithful. God has been faithful to us. The kind of sub... Um, the kind of hidden nudging there is if he has been faithful, let us be faithful. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. And then he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. He drops a phrase then that pushes us. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another. And so much the more, as we see the day, that is the day of His return, the day of His appearing, approaching. The fact is, you and I, in Christ, have been afforded the opportunity to step into the presence of God Not as individual believers in Jesus, but as His body. Members of His body. We have been afforded through Christ to enter into the holiest of all places. And we are urged to draw near to that place. To hold fast to our faith. And to consider one another. For we are members of one body. The body needs its parts. If I were to cut off my hand like the Ikea label tells me I ought not to do, my body is going to be limited. I'm right-handed. If I cut off my left hand, I might be a little bit better off than if I were to cut off my right hand, but I'll still be limited. There are a number of things that I would use my left hand for that that I'm suddenly not going to be able to do quite well. Swinging a baseball bat would be a bit tough. It could be done. But my body will obviously be affected if my left hand is removed. The body of Christ suffers when its members or its parts are absent. When its parts are cut off or have cut themselves off, the body suffers. It hurts. It isn't what it ought to be. It isn't what it once was. That's trouble. That's trouble for the body. 
But even more so than the body needs it, it needs its parts. The parts need the body. If I cut off my left hand, my body suffers, but my hand dies. Its tissue is no longer going to be nourished. It cannot maintain life on its own. Its blood cannot continue circulating. Its muscle will die. We as modern hearers, we hear Paul's theology in the New Testament of the church and we hear this letter to the Hebrews about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves and we think, oh, I guess it's a good thing maybe that we get together as individual believers in Jesus and we kind of together worship. But that's not Paul's theology in the New Testament. His theology is we depend upon the body. We are part of one body. And we cannot live as islands on our own. That shocks our modern ears. Because, you know, we think of ourselves as individual people who can do whatever we want. And you know what? By golly, we can even maintain a relationship with Christ if we want. All we've got to do is what we, do what we can do. To maintain that relationship. We have a very, very individualistic understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We think of discipleship as me and my own personal relationship with Jesus. And the only thing, the only thing I need to maintain that relationship is my very own Bible. And I can read it for myself. And I can study it for myself. And I can interpret it for myself. And I can apply it into my own life by my own self. And I need no one else. I need no tradition of the church for 2,000 years to help lead me as I study my own Bible. Just give me my Bible. Give me a pen and a highlighter and maybe a set of reading glasses. And I can maintain my life in Jesus all by my lonesome. And the New Testament will hear nothing of that. The New Testament tells us you are a part of the body and you desperately need the body. And the command very plainly here in the letter to the Hebrews is do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. In fact, you should continue to assemble and you should continue to stir up one another even all the more as the return of Christ looms near. There are benefits of corporal worship. You know, we, we hear that word corporeal or corporal and we think, what in the world is kind of an odd term? I, I, I could easily use the word corporate worship, but it, of course our minds would go to incorporations and that sort of thing. Uh, but both of those words have their root in where we also get the term corpse. You know what a corpse is? It is the body without a spirit. Right? It's... You, you, don't, you wouldn't call me a corpse if I were dead, if my spirit had left. 
my soul is gone, you would say, okay, now we have a corpse. But that word, corporal worship, corporate, incorporated, uh, corpse, they all refer to a body, something that has been made one, something that is a variety of parts put together to be one thing. And there are benefits to coming together as the body of Christ to worship. We could easily use the word congregational worship, which would probably be very very literally tied to what the Hebrews writer is saying here. Because he talks about the assembling of ourselves. And to congregate is to come together, to get together. In fact, the, the word church in the New Testament is typically the the Greek term ekklesia, which means the gathering together or the assembling together. The congregation. Those who have been called out and called together to be the family of God and to worship Him. There are benefits to worshiping together. Benefits that cannot be had apart from worshiping together. And when we look at these benefits, I want you to bear in mind that this is not just a pragmatic issue, as though we are machines that are mechanically driven, and therefore our thoughts are kind of utilitarian. What do I get out of worship? How am I benefited through worship? But the fact is, there are benefits. We, being persons, are created in the image of God. And we are benefited by coming together as the body of Christ to worship. There are personal benefits. Benefits for me. Benefits for the believer. How do I benefit in gathering together? Well, in gathering, quite frankly, I'm obedient to God. He says it plainly in His Word that we are not to forsake assembling together. I love podcasts. Um, I listen to a number of them. We host one where my sermons, my you know, floundering sermons are, are offered to the billions of people around the world through the internet. I love podcasts. But a podcast sermon cannot replace what is experienced in the gathering together of the people of God for worship. There's a reason we gather. We gather, firstly, because God has told us to. In fact, He's told us to not stop gathering, implying that we would be gathering. It is the Father's demand upon my life that I gather with His people and worship Him. You know, in the New Testament, um, these churches that were brought together, they typically met in homes. They were typically very intimate groups. They were small. Um, Their worship was, we tend to kind of romanticize it and think that it was very unstructured and unprepared and unplanned and they're just kind of sitting around like hippies, you know, singing whatever and praying whatever, and there's really kind of no leadership. But all throughout the New Testament letters, you've got mention of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and the way that they were to pray. Uh, and, and, and it seems actually very, uh, very intentional and very structured. Um, they met in homes. They were intimate groups. 
there wasn't an option of, well, I, you know, that, that guy made me mad and I don't like those people, so I'm going to go, you know, to the other neighborhood and visit their, their home church. You know, we've got a plethora of churches. We literally have a church on every single corner here, kind of, so to speak, on this intersection. That The only exception is here where the shopping center is, but, hey, you throw a rock and you get to the next church right there on that same corner. And so we've, we've got a variety of places where we can frequent. We've got a variety of means of you know, getting our worship on. We can listen to our CDs. Uh, we can listen to our MP3 players and listen to whatever worship's being pumped in from wherever. And then we can go listen to whatever sermon we happen to like to hear or happen to be inter- interested in. But that does not replace coming together as the body of Christ. There's something that happens here. And one thing is we are obeying God by coming together. The Father demands that we worship. He demands that we come together, that we strengthen one another. The benefits for me include also in gathering, I'm expressing my faith. I'm expressing my faith in Christ. This is His body, His flesh. In the world. It is to be his presence in his world. We, in, in the, um, the, the culture and the times in which we live, we, we are surrounded by this movement to say that what happens here on Sunday mornings really doesn't matter because what does matter is what happens when we go out that door. It matters how we live in the world. And I would say, yes, that is true, but the first part of that, that what happens here doesn't matter, is complete lie. We express our faith in Christ by gathering together to worship. Our worship is directed through Him to the Father. And we gather, as the New Testament would call us, in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit. Our worship is directed toward Christ. We're expressing our faith in Him by gathering together. We're saying He matters so much in my life that I can give of my time and I can give of my energies to worship Him with His people. I can declare that that for which He died, the church, matters. It matters to me. And I'm benefited in expressing my faith by gathering together. Another benefit for me is that in gathering I'm strengthened as a disciple for life. He specifically says, stir up one another for love and good works. He says that we're holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We're drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts have been sprinkled. Our bodies have been washed. And we are drawing together, considering one another, to strengthen one another toward love and good works. Exhorting one another. Challenging. Pushing. Now this, again, is not 
We typically are strengthened in the context of an accountability group. We're typically strengthened in the context of a small group that gets together to study the scriptures together. But, but the writer here is specifically talking about the assembling of ourselves together for the worship of God. And we're strengthened because His Spirit is present with us. And His Spirit illumines us and leads us into truth. The fact is, we are, all, we are all part of the family. And growing up in a family, we are surrounded by others. In fact, a family is even part of a larger family. You know, the extended family. The tree is always bigger than we can imagine when we're sitting out on one branch. You know, we here at Faith Methodist, we're, we're out on a branch and we think, yeah, this is the family. But the tree is bigger than this. It's much bigger than this. That should not invite us to, uh, to be church connoisseurs where we kind of go here a little bit and go there a little bit and kind of get a sampling of this this week and a little sampling of that the next week. Because here the writer is, is dealing with the understanding that there is a group of people who regularly are to be gathering together. Not merely for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the body and for the benefit of one another. And I can't strengthen you if I'm not spending time with you. It's not just so that I can be strengthened, it's so that together we might be strengthened. But there are benefits not just for me, but also for the us involved in worship. When we come together, when we gather as the assembly of God, there are benefits for the congregation. In gathering, we sanctify time and energy. Quite frankly, we make time and energy holy in the activities that we participate in on Sunday mornings. Because the mindset of the world, our natural mindset, is that what we do here on Sunday mornings is a waste of time and it is a waste of energy. After all, we could be feeding the poor right now. We could be spending time with our families right now. I would challenge that by saying you ought to be spending time with your families at church right now. But, you know, we could be, you know, catching a game together. We could be sharing a meal together. For most of church uh, history, Sunday was about sharing a meal together. It was about sharing communion together. That was the central aspect of the worship of the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, if we were to receive communion together on a weekly basis, some of you would be kind of uncomfortable. Why in the world are we doing this? Because we're feeding on Christ. Our lives are being sustained in Him as the people of God, as His body. But what we do here on Sunday mornings, it sanctifies, it makes holy time and energy. You know, we sing out. Some of us sing not quite so out. We mentioned the band 
and the beautiful music that we enjoy uh, almost on a weekly basis. It takes energy to play music and lead singing. There's energy that, not like a cosmic energy, I'm not talking weird here, I'm talking about like the energy we actually burn on Sunday mornings and the time we actually spend on Sunday mornings. It could be spent elsewhere. But God says, come together as my people. Gather together. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. But even all the more as you see the day approaching. Worship is not a waste. It is not a waste. In gathering, we join the activity of heaven. This temple language that the Hebrews writer is is bringing into uh, our imaginations is used very intentionally. He talks about the veil being torn. The high priest over the house of God entering into the holiest. That temple language is intended to bring back to our minds what the temple was about, what the temple represented, what the temple expressed about reality. And that is, in the temple, the temple was not just some physical place on earth where special things were done. The temple was intended to be where heaven and earth overlapped one another, where they met. It was where the people of God met with God in His very presence. Paul, in the New Testament, grabs that temple language and he plugs it into the life of the church and he says, you are the temple of God. The Spirit indwells the church and the Spirit indwells the believer. And therefore, heaven and earth are intended to overlap one another. That's where all that language that Paul gets about us, though we are living, we're actually living the life of Jesus in us. And so as we gather for worship, we're not gathering to try to work up ourselves and to have something nice to offer up to God. Instead, we're invited in worship to come and to join in with with what is going on in heaven. We're called to lift up our voices with those of the angels and archangels. We're called to praise Him and to cry out, Holy, 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 just as the beasts that are spoken of and the elders that are spoken of in the book of the Revelation are. That's advantageous to us as the church. In gathering, we, the body, are equipped and are energized. We become, in worship, a force to be reckoned with, so to speak. His presence is with us. We're joining in on the activities of heaven. Heaven and earth are overlapping. 
Time and energy is being sanctified. We're being obedient to God. We're expressing our faith in Christ. We individually are being strengthened as disciples so as to live in the world that He's created and in the world that His Son has died to redeem. And the body is equipped and energized not to defeat our communities, but to live victoriously within our communities and to bring the life of God to our communities. To bring redemption to the world. So what about that title? Come on, man. Um... I don't even know if they still have it, but ESPN used to, I think on Monday Night Football, used to have a little segment called, Come On, Man. It was boneheaded things that folks did, and the the commentators were saying, Come on, man. I... um, I I want that phrase to to work really in a a few ways. Um, Number one, it kind of brings the idea of uh, to us of the question, really? Like those warning labels do, really? I've got to be told that, really? But also I use it very literally, come on. Join together as the church. Come together for worship. Don't forsake the assembly. You know, there's a difference between between reasons for something and excuses for something. There are sometimes legitimate reasons that keep us from gathering together. But that doesn't mean that every excuse we make is a valid one. We ought to gather. And then of course the term man, not, not not intending it to be like a with the, to exclude women, but the term "man" is a it, it's it's a mature term. We talk about manning up, growing strong, doing what's needed, doing what's necessary. You can almost hear the writer to the Hebrews saying, "Come on, man." Don't forsake one another. And not just don't forsake one another like individual parts, but don't forsake coming together. The assembling of yourselves. We need each other. We need what we experience on Sunday mornings. Not wherever we happen to experience or not wherever we happen to make up for experiencing it by listening elsewhere. But we need what is actually experienced here on Sunday mornings to live faithfully on Monday and to be empowered as His body to live in His world. To bring the hope that we have to the world. He says very plainly, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves. Come on, man. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would that you would challenge us, that you would push us.